This is Difference Makers, and I'm your host, Adam Van Bremer. On our latest episode, the Savannah Voice Festival's Maria Zuvis discusses co-founding and nurturing Savannah's annual celebration of song and how music has shaped her life. The Difference Makers podcast is brought to you by an organization making a major difference in our community, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. organizations and businesses they lead. You might even know their faces. But do you know why they are Difference Makers? This is Difference Makers, a podcast presented by the Savannah Economic Development Authority and dedicated to highlighting Savannah's key players and their contributions to our community. Difference Makers hail from several sectors, including commerce, government, education, arts and culture, and philanthropy. I'm Adam Van Bremer, editorial page editor of Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. Thank you for listening. The 7th Annual Savannah Voice Festival is underway, and it stretches throughout the month of August. The event is the creation of retired opera legend Cheryl Milne and his wife, Maria Zuvis, herself an accomplished opera singer as well as an expert in musical production. She joins us today on Difference Makers, with Cheryl making a cameo here and there. Joined on Difference Makers today by Savannah Voice Festival's organizers, Maria Zuvis and her husband Cheryl Milne. Of course, a opera great in his own right, and Maria has quite the background in, in opera singing as well, and we're going to cover that. And like we usually do with the Difference Makers, we start with filling in the listeners on the background. I think certainly a lot of people have, uh, know who Cheryl is. A lot of people here in town now know who, who Maria is. But Maria, can you kind of fill us in? You have quite an interesting backstory uh, i guess technically you're a floridian i guess would be the proper way to say it but yeah i guess so i grew up in flip-flops so i guess that qualifies from being a floridian <laughs> yeah but i think your i think your family background goes a little bit farther abroad than that can you kind of fill us in well it's the american experience actually my parents were immigrants from well they're greek 100 percent uh from the islands my father's from simi my mother is from a beautiful island called castellorizo uh, part of the 12 islands of the Canis Islands. But they uh, were born and raised in Egypt. So in Alexandria, there was a big Greek community and uh, emigrated to South Africa, to Johannesburg, and then from there to New York City in Hell's Kitchen. So it truly was that, that New York, exp- or that immigrant experience, and raised five daughters. I was born here. My sisters were born abroad, but my second to the oldest and uh, youngest and me, I'm the baby, we're born in Flushing, New York. Isn't that exotic? Mm-hmm. From from uh, yeah. <laughs> Alexandria, Egypt to Flushing, New York. That's right. uh, and then my father, um, he he just kind of b- took his whole family to Florida, and we were in the Tampa Bay area from the time I was four years old to now. So uh, with with some living in New York and having the opera singing experience that I had. Uh, Florida still kind of maintained itself as a as a home, right. and which the is great. The, the family's professional arc was kind of unique as well. You said your father was a prof- professional actor before he moved. Yes, he to was. This side of the world, mm-hmm. he he was degreed in theater, and was part of a traveling troupe mm-hmm. uh, in Alexandria, all around Egypt, with uh, Greek classic theater so shakespeare and greek and and the whole nine yards it wasn't until he was raising a family that he took on other jobs to support 
his family. So he was a merchant marine and then a machinist and learned all about air conditioning. That was a new thing in, yeah. in the Americas, you know, in America. In Florida, there was plenty of work for that. Oh, my sure. gosh, yes. <laughs> it, was a, it was a wonderful new thing in 1959 when he moved down. So um, he, he worked for Continental Can Company. So it was, it was interesting because he spoke five languages. He was a very sophisticated man. But he was also a very practical man and, and really appreciated America for what it, it had to offer. And, you, you know, typically we hear about Greek, my big fat Greek wedding and all mm-hmm. that. You know, that's, some of that's true. But you hear about Greek fathers, you know, not being very progressive about their daughters. They should just marry and have a, a life. And um, my father always raised us to believe in education. We were, we were all, in, you know, pushed to have a higher education. I have a master's degree and um, uh, my father wanted us to keep going and to really be independent. Um, marrying a Greek boy would be nice, but it wasn't a prerequisite for success. So, yes, it was a different background. My mother was an amazing woman who sang when she was young. So I, I think some of that came from her. But the theatrical side, I think, was definitely dad. He right. was a, a very colorful being. He would have loved what we were doing here in Savannah. He's since passed, but I think he would have been a favorite uh, character here because he was quite charming. And you came to the singing a little bit later. When you were smaller, you weren't playing with dolls. You were playing with what? Well, I used to play office when I was a kid. My dad would bring home from Continental Can Company the old office equipment that they were getting rid of, an old stapler that was broken or an old stamp, you know. And so I would set up my shop. And I had a character that I played, and I would play office. So, but I always sang. I never, you know, stopped singing. I would burst into song at the backseat of our old Rambler when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, actually, for me, I wanted to be an artist, a visual artist. I, I really, that was the direction I was going to go in in high school. Mm-hmm. And my choral teacher uh, was the one who really felt that I, I needed to move on in music. So I took that on. But the, uh, the, the business part of me, I was president of Future Business Leaders of America. Well, all of that was an aside. You know, right. the Greek Orthodox Youth of America, I was, I was the president of that, you know, had my gavel. But I never <laughs> thought of it as something I was going to do. It was just something I really enjoyed. I enjoyed being in charge of things and making things happen. It was fun for me. And your singing, you mentioned the choral in high school, I assume, if you're in a Greek Orthodox church, I assume mm-hmm. you were singing there. Yes. Or are you in the back seat? Are you singing rock and roll, or are you singing opera? Where, 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 where? <laughs> well, you know, we, we did grow up with Greek and Egyptian, you know, Arabic music in our house. Mm-hmm. Um, when I tell people that we had the trio bel canto and om kalsum mm-hmm. playing in LPs, they look at me like I just made the words up, but th- <laughs> that's a thing. Right. Uh, and um, But I, I loved... I loved Barbara Streisand. I loved James Taylor. My sisters were all older than I was. My right. sis, my oldest sister and I have a 15-year span. So whatever they were listening to, I was listening to. Um, Carly Simon. And um, I remember wearing out the LP of the Star, A Star is Born with Chris Christopherson and yes. Barbara Streisand. So, in fact, some of our artists that are with us, uh, Jessica Best being one of them, we're, we're – we're Streisand fanatics. I mean, we can kind of still sing all the lyrics of all of her albums. Right. <laughs> so right. 
That never left me. I was also a big Judy Garland fan. I think I sang my first Over the Rainbow when I was 11 years old in church. Um, but I, I mean, to this day, I still I still will sing that. At a, that's my party piece. Uh, but I, I fell in love with classical music when I was getting my degree at Stetson University okay. in, uh, in Deland, Florida, mm-hmm. just because it was so complicated and beautiful and colorful. I remember listening to the Frauenliebundleben song cycle by Schumann mm-hmm. with Kathleen Ferrier and her gorgeous, rich, deep voice and thinking, my heavens, what could be more beautiful than that? Right. So um, while I will still sing Fire and Rain mm-hmm. when nobody's listening, mm-hmm. uh, I can't think of anything more gorgeous than Maria Kala singing Casta Diva. So I guess, I guess our festival reflects that. You know, what we're doing here is actually a reflection of what I've always loved. Right. So you start to really fall in love with music in college. How does that kind of shape where you're going in college? Where you studying business were you studying music no i was there on a scholarship for voice okay um so you know i really did think i was going to be a visual artist and um just didn't go there so you know i don't think i've held a pencil to sketch in a couple of years but um i i did pursue it as a as a performance degree i have you know a a bachelor's and a master's in voice performance Mm -hmm. And I thought I was going to have a major career because that's what you did. You know, you just under the impression that it's your studio with your teacher to the Metropolitan Opera. Sure. And anything else is pass or fail, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is another reason why I think I am so passionate about mentoring singers and career alternatives and and finding their place in the world. Because obviously, you don't go from the studio to the Met. There's a lot of little capillaries that happen. You don't go right for the jugular. So um, singers sometimes forget that they can sing their whole lives and not have a major operatic career. And, and that's exciting for me because my story in and of itself can be an inspiration for young singers. Yeah. And one of those capillaries for you was to blend the business side with the performance side. That's right. Yeah, I remember when I first did an audition for um, for Baltimore Opera. Michael Harrison was the then general director, was a lovely man, and he had hired me to do Hansel and Gretel. I sang uh, an audition on his main stage, and he came up on stage and he looked at me and he said, "You know, you're really wonderful." I mean, I was I was married to Cheryl, so it was a little bit of a take my wife please, which I I struggled with in the beginning. I felt like I had to prove myself twice because they just assumed, well, okay, Cheryl's wife, we have to hear her sing out of courtesy to Cheryl. Um, so my auditions, I had more pressure than just mm-hmm. a kid, you know, sure. auditioning. And I remember he came up and he goes, "I I didn't expect you to be so wonderful." <laughs> I, <laughs> Take as a compliment. But anyway, I remember looking at him and saying, but Michael, I want your job. (laughs) I just, for me, it was about affecting change in the art, whether it was on stage singing and somebody would cry or be, Mm -hmm. or love it, Mm -hmm. or to bring, you know, a thousand people into a theater and enjoy what we put up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Bridge us from when you meet him and and you're married to, to coming to Savannah, uh, obviously, you said that it's a big you, went to, you went to Baltimore and and said, "Hey, I don't necessarily want to be up here. I'm, I want your job." Right? 
how did your career arc go from from there to to coming here and starting the voice festival yeah good question actually it's easy easily answered i loved being out there and singing when cheryl was out there and singing we did several things together and it was fun don giovanni falstaff you know concerts concerts. we had a a box of duet concerts that we would do all, all around the world and we had fun doing it um but at some point he decided rightfully so it was time to stop and i remember the moment in a Falstaff production in Pittsburgh, I was Nanetta and he was Falstaff, where he just, he turned to our friend Fabrizio Milano, who is the stage director of one of our productions this summer and was the stage director for that production. And he said, I think I'm done. I think this is going to be it. And I remember rehearsal after we had talked about it, it wasn't a surprise to me, but I remember looking at Fabrizio after that and saying, I think I'm going to be done too. And a tremendous relief came over me because... I felt pressured to do the career because that's what I pursued. Right. And I think a lot of singers feel that way. It's like, but I've gone down this road and everybody's invested in me and I have sponsors and I have these people and I have my spouse and my friends and my parents and how can I say that I'm not going to do it when I've gone this far? Well, I've never stopped singing from that day to here. Right. I have always continued to sing and in fact was in my own opera with Michael Ching's Anna Hunter. Um, just last year. So you never stop. You're always a singer till the day you die. Mm -hmm. But I really wanted to pass on my story to others, and I really wanted to pass on Cheryl's story. So really, it started with a master class series at Disney uh, with what was the Disney Institute idea Mm -hmm. to creating a program called Voice Experience, where I was the executive director. So I taught myself how to be an administrator Mm -hmm. through running intensives for singers. And I did it with the idea that I wanted them to know what I wish I had known. We all do that, right? We Mm -hmm. all do things I wish I'd known. So I, I really wanted singers to be given the messages that I wanted to have when I was 20 and 30. Um, so we built it together, and it's 20 years old next year, Voice mm-hmm. Experience. We're celebrating our anniversary of that program, and the foundation of it is teaching the art of singing, mm-hmm. and it is inspiring singers and audiences. So I became sort of interested in the outreach. Mm-hmm. How do we continue inspiring people about this art form that became my goal the business side like it was in the beginning was just evolved i i like doing budgets i'm weird i love spreadsheets (laughs) let me interrupt you weaning yourself away from that i mean performing you performing for a long time you performed for a long time did you miss it did it hurt did it was it you, you mentioned it's a relief it's almost like the expectations is off but what part of it was hard well it was harder for you for you i don't think it was really hard for me because uh, 42 years of earning a living from singing is a long time mm-hmm. and, and you've done i lived it all in, and i made uh, yeah almost all did it a lot and lived in manhattan in, in new york a lifetime 37 years i lived in manhattan uh how many so performances it wasn't as at hard. The Met? Sorry? How many performances did you do at the Six, Met? 654, 654. Wow. Yeah. It's a life. But it's a lot. Yeah. yeah, nothing left to prove at the end of that. <laughs> yeah. I guess so. I guess yeah. so, yeah. Well, that's a good question, though, that you asked for me is I, I think what was the hardest thing about it? I didn't miss singing because I never stopped. Mm -hmm. I think the hardest part for me was the process of the – I am an actress. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. My father instilled that in me. Mm-hmm. I love to act. I love, I mean, one of my favorite things is my pre-curtain speech. And you can ask anybody that's come to our program, <laughs> Maria, sometimes her pre-curtain speech goes along a little too long. <laughs> but people say they love it, so that's okay. And I love hosting my concerts. I love being on stage. Uh-huh. And I missed the process of developing a character. Right. It was so much fun for me two years ago when Michael Ching said, okay, Maria, I want to write this opera, you know, commission. I think this is a good subject matter, Anna Hunter. And, you know, we know her as being someone who really began the Savannah historical Mm -hmm. uh, movement Mm -hmm. with the other women that, that she inspired. And I said, Michael, I did not build this program to sing in it. That was one of the things I vowed I would not do. A lot of artists will do that. They'll, well, I can't, I can't have a career, so I'm going to build something so I can sing. Well, there's, there's validity to that, but it wasn't ever about me. It was about the singers we were trying to help. Mm-hmm. So I always felt that it was a little bit of a bad deal if I put myself into that situation. Mm-hmm. And it was Michael Ching that said, Maria, no, you're inspiring your artists by doing it. You're their mentor. Mm-hmm. If I were a violinist, I would play with my kids. Right. There's nothing wrong with that. And I never thought of it that way. So being part of Anna Hunter and that experience and learning about her and meeting her family, her her great-granddaughter and I sat together and talked and you know those kinds of things are like amazing for me mm-hmm. i miss that mm-hmm. i any opportunity to create that for me even now in my mid 50s mm-hmm. i go yeah bring it on <laughs> sure. i'll do it so i think i regret that i didn't get a lot of that because i do love to be on the stage it's not about singing right it's about character development. Yeah. So I would even do something a straight play, you know, right. just bring it on. I, I I would love to be able to stay creative that way. And that's one of the reasons why I love stage directing. So I, I also feel like by doing the administrative work that I do, I de facto take myself out of the artistic process. Sure. And I miss that part. I would love to have time in my program to be one of my stage directors. Yeah, interesting. So let's go let's go back to the program. So you you've started a, a voice experience program at this point and you're growing it you're you're enjoying the business side where does it evolve to and at, at this point you're not here correct you're started no. it somewhere else where we we started you know voice experience began at disney it was there for 12 years mm-hmm. uh we would sing outreach programs i learned to build outreach by what they sort of made us do which is their voices of liberty which is that beautiful acapella group that's at epcot they would give us 20 to 25 minutes to do a pre-show for them in between and it ran like clockwork so if you it's disney always runs like yeah clockwork. and you ran out of the 20 minutes you were out like they the recording would come on ladies and gentlemen boys and girls that was the music of voice experience you know like it happened whether you were done singing or not or sometimes they mispronounced it <laughs> yes Vo- i remember one time they said the music of voice express i'm like oh, voice what? express yeah that was <laughs> a pizza place pizza like? express <laughs> anyway um so i learned how to build those shows you know i learned how to glue shows together that way so that that happened for a long time and we had a great relationship with um the gm of the coronado springs resort which now they've launched this amazing epic new building there 
uh, Rylas Carter, and he would have us go in and like sing for their cast member events. We did a we did a concert called Voices Around the World for their cast members every year, singing starting with It's a Small World in different languages, mm-hmm. and then we would go on and do a little bit like what we're doing with our song night here mm-hmm. in the festival, where it's just different languages and just celebrating the language of music. So we cultivated a lot there, and then from that moment on, when it became cost prohibitive to stay at Disney because you know prices go up, yeah. Mickey's not a nonprofit. Right. Uh, we are. Yeah. We. I started running Opera Tampa. I started working as the associate general director of Opera Tampa uh, as part of the Stras Center for the Performing Arts. So Judy Lisi, who was the CEO at the time, said, "You know, I need a partner. I need somebody that will." you know, really helped me run this opera company. She was the, the general manager. And she said, you know, I, I will you come on board? And I thought, well, this is great. Perfect next step for me. And I learned so much there. And I sat on the vice president team, VP team. Uh, and so de facto, I sort of for five years saw the infrastructure of what a performing arts facility is mm-hmm. at its highest level. Judy was visionary there so it was great for me because i kind of got my chops through that work Mm -hmm. great next step and i even talked about going for my you know mba with my headhunter when you know i was looking for work and and what to do and basically i was told by several women in the industry you can do that you can get that mba but really it's just about what you want to do in this art and it's not going to afford you that much more. And so I decided, you know what? I want to be a Johnny Appleseed. I don't want to be part of a huge organization like that anymore. Yeah. And Savannah at that time had just been approached as a possibility by a past participant in our program, mm-hmm. Rebecca Flaherty, who still very much here and part mm-hmm. of the musical world here. Mm-hmm. She had come to our program and she says, you know, I think there's potential here. And so we started at GSU mm-hmm. uh, with... Um, Richard Mercier, who was the head of the voice department there, has since passed away, unfortunately, and um, started a program here. And the audiences loved it. And all of a sudden, I realized this was a great place to cultivate voice experience. And after two years of voice experience, you know, and meeting with people like Michael Owens and, and Joe Marinelli and Mark Spadoni, which, you know, were really kind of three very key developers of what we were doing. Uh, I remember Joe Marinelli looked at me and he said, Maria, he said, this city runs on festivals. It does. So... I think that's really where you need to be. And August was a time where tourism was lower. At that time, yeah. At that time. Yeah. But I feel like we've contributed to the fact that right. now August is becoming a booming time. I feel yeah. like we really had a part in that. And right. the figures back up what, what I say. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden we ended up, I remember a myriad of emails going back with all of our constituents here. Just, what do you think of this name? What do you think of that name? That name? And then all of a sudden we went, well, it's a Savannah Voice Festival. Mm-hmm. It is that is what it, it is. It is what it is. Yeah. So Voice, that capital O I C E, mm-hmm. came from vocal operatic intensive creative experience. That's what we were. Okay. The logo old logo had that on there. Okay. So it was voice experience. Uh-huh. And so now we're just voice. Uh-huh. That's how it started. Uh-huh. Seven years later, here we are with our seventh season. Uh-huh. The Cheryl Milne's voice programs being the big brand over which all of it sits. Um, and hundreds and hundreds of singers that have matriculated through the program 20 years later. 
they're now in their careers and um next year we're going to have a big reunion and have them come back with their kids and whatever i mean we have singers that are bringing their students to us sure we're having singers that are bringing their children last year we had three legacy kids our son being one of them that were participating in camp voice so i think that we didn't really start out with that i'm a big strategic planner but it was not part of the strat plan to build this kind of thing yes but we have it and and without savannah we wouldn't savannah i get very emotional when i think about savannah because it's a city i've always loved uh, it's a city that had mystique and mystery and 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 sexiness to it for me, um, and to be able to build this here and to be to have the honor and the joy of Savannah embracing us, mm-hmm. um, it sort of speaks to the American in me. Right. <laughs> it's like right. I'm part of you know history and i'm part of this historic city even though i'm an immigrant's kid you know this is just phenomenal and when we put alice riley on uh and that whole colonial time uh with michael ching um as our fearless leader compositionally i remember sitting in the back of the morris for the opening just standing there and watching the audience and seeing how beautiful it looked, our projection set on the on the bricks of the Morris, and our artists up there, some of them we'd mentored for years. It was all sort of culminating and gelling into one moment. You know, you have those moments, and I just mm-hmm. I remember looking around and and just thinking, wow, right. that just happened. Right. I didn't plan that in 2000 when we were thinking to do a master class series at Walt Disney World. Yeah. But here it is. to talk more about the Savannah Voice Festival with Maria Zubis, but let's pause a moment and recognize the Difference Makers presenting sponsor, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. The team at CETA is pushing to make Savannah a great place to work and live. CETA is committed to creating, growing, and attracting jobs and investment in the Savannah region. Whether a business looking to relocate to the Savannah region or an existing business ready to grow and expand, CETA is your centrifuge of your propeller, making the connections, helping propel the business to success. Learn more about the Savannah Economic Development Authority and what they do in the Savannah community by visiting CETA.org. I want to talk about this year's festival, but first, Marinelli tells you this is a festival town. But this <laughs> is also a town that's slow to embrace new things. Can you talk about the early days and, and organizing those concerts and those festivals, the first couple? How hard was it to get it going? What were some of the experiences, the challenges? Well, it's interesting because um, I think I think it's not that they're slow to embrace. I think they're just – I think they're careful. I think Savannah's really careful. And um, to, to talk a little bit about stuff people don't talk about or don't like to talk about to, in public is – you know, the whole thing about the Savannah Symphony mm-hmm. um, was just sort of coming yeah. to a close right. when we came on board. Yep. And the Savannah Philharmonic Harmonic was brand new. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things that happened that was very encouraging was that, you know, Rob Gibson welcomed mm-hmm. us. Yep. Um, the artistic team of the Savannah Philharmonic at the time, which was David Pratt and Peter Shannon, they invited us into a meeting. So the two of them sat with us in their offices. We, we weren't even sure what we were going to do here. Mm-hmm. And they said, there's room for everybody. And um, we're here if you need us. Mm-hmm. 
the Savannah Friends of Music, um, Lynn Davis, said, you want to be here? You be here. Mills Fleming said, you tell me where you want to be in five years, I'll help you make it happen. Wow. So what's also cool about it is that here's a city that when you mention names, Mm -hmm. people know who they are. It's small, small, very small. So everybody knows everybody. It's like being on campus rather than being in a city. Mm-hmm. So you walk down Broughton Street, you're going you're gonna to see people and you're going to do business, you know, whether you want to or not. So I remember thinking, wow, people really want us to be part of this. Okay. And then I also remember people being reluctant to engage. Mm-hmm. And in the reluctance to enga- engage, uh, comes the reluctance to support a nonprofit, mm-hmm. and that takes money. And that is one of the things that is the hardest about what we do is fundraising. Yeah. Fundraising. A lot of that in, town, in this town. A small town with a lot of nonprofits. Small yeah. town with a lot of nonprofits. So everybody's being hit up for everything. I get that. I, everyone's being hit up, you know, and so it, you know, I, I always feel being, being a Greek American, going back to that again, you know, Cheryl's a small town farm boy, um, an immigrant's kid from Hell's Kitchen. You, you're a little humble, you know, you just kind of go, look, I know you don't have to do this, but we could really use your help. So I say thank you a lot because I don't know what else to say. Right. I'm in awe of the fact that, yeah, it took a couple years for Savannah to kind of jump on board. A lot of people jumped on right away, though, and said, we're going to help you. Enough jumped on board. Enough that allowed us to do it. The first year we were here, we lost a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was scary. Mm -hmm. But then the second year, we were able to replenish. So anyway, my whole point was that... I, I still look around the room and I, I'm, you know, I've got my program book right here in front of me right now as we're talking, right? And I'm looking at the back pages of all the donations and a big thank you at the top of the page. Mm-hmm. And I always say to people, take a look at those back pages. And if you see people that are these names, say thank you. Right. My artists learn as part of their training, they learn how to say thank you. Mm-hmm. Because artists need patrons. It is as old as all of our centuries of royalty and court composers. Mm-hmm. We need support. And, and we hope, and I, my philosophy very much is, um, when you give, you get back twice. Mm-hmm. The Greeks have a wonderful phrase, natahis uh, natadinis, may you have it so that you may be able to give it. it right. And my mother used to bestow this blessing on me all the time. She would mm-hmm. say, may you have it, natahis natadinis, may you have it so that you may be able to give it. And so that drives me forward with my donors and my sponsors because I hope and pray that what we give them back, that joy, mm-hmm. that, that knowing that they are impacting legacy of music is enough payment for what it is they're sacrificing for us. Let's talk about what you're giving back in this year's festival, specifically about the program. Uh, Heaven and Earth is the theme this year. Can you fill us in on on what that means? Well, I like to have a theme every year. I think it's fun. Um, It drives the programming. But because we're doing payachi and we're doing, um, you know, that's very earthy, it's verismo, 
opera and Verismo is very much about motions and such. And then we're doing Dialogues of the Carmelites is about these nuns who are put to the guillotine because they would not denounce God. Mm -hmm. And then we have Forever Plaid, which is the comical side of that, where this, you know, quartet of of singers of, you know, the 1950s repertoire hit by a bus on the way <laughs> to see the Beatles and have to sing their way to heaven, you know, and I oh, thought wow. and the little prince is this is this astro sort of character that exists out in space who comes to earth for a brief moment and meets uh, a pilot who is uh, his plane has crashed in the Sahara and they interact and he talks about all the other planets and how all these people he meets he can't understand humans he can't understand adults so it's about the child experience of relationships and i thought well heaven and earth it's it sort of sums it up right yeah. and we were bon appetit is about you know enjoying chocolate cake for god's sakes could that be more earthly and That's right. you know so i always struggle to find my theme but this one was kind of easy to figure out and, and so i feel like we live in both realms especially as artists singers really live in both realms there's a part of us that has to be very down to earth very practical very pragmatic technical and then the other part of us has to release all of that at the moment that we sing and really be creative mm -hmm. Um, so it's like the duality of who we are, the duality of our spirit is is basically all encompassed in this art form, mm -hmm. um, and that's why I wanted to do a 5K in the middle of it. Right. You know, we have a we have a run in the middle of the festival. Right. I mean, Lord knows, after over 30 events that we're doing in three weeks, we have enough to do. But I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if on the day off, artists could like show up at seven o'clock in the morning at the Harbor Ballroom and go on a run and right. really get their spirit going before they go to the historic district. So so that's what this theme is about. It's a, it's really about the duality of who we are and it's about the duality of vocal music. And I think that the programming also encompasses that. We've got these heavenly esoteric pieces like dialogues and then we've got these earthly down to earth have a beer, you know, in in the rock and roll concert. So I just love how we are expanding out the edges of vocal music. And the other part of this is education is a big part of of what you all do with your program and there's some school kids that are going to be a part of some of the performances. Correct? Absolutely. Education is the key to what we do. And Savannah Voice Festival and Voice Experience both work in education. Voice Experience spends a lot of time educating the artists from uh, high school, from our voice camp, which is uh, kids who are really interested in pursuing it as a degree. Uh, they can come to us and do college preparation. So our voice camp represents that to singers who are post-college emerging into the professional world so that's voice experience but the voice festival works a lot with outreach in the communities and it um, so does voice experience around the nation but particularly for savannah uh, savannah voice festival works in the chatham county school district it works with bethesda it works with the classical academy it goes out to hospitals and now we have a new partnership with hospice savannah um, we are artists in residence with Hospice Savannah and have taken our uh, official residency at the Demery Center for Living and are going to be helping with musical therapy and uh, learning more about how our voices can impact um, quality of life. 
and uh, for the grieving and, and, and for those that just want to be enriched by it. So we're very excited about that. Um, and that's going to be happening in the next couple of years. So that's going to evolve. But, but particularly for school-aged children, our two operas, The Commission of Birthday Clown, uh, Michael Ching has written it with the Savannah Classical Academy Kids in Mind, the string ensemble, mm-hmm. um, where they're going to be uh, given a little uh, solo and performing it they're they're the birthday kids that are at the birthday party and then they'll turn right around and get in the pit and play a solo which is really exciting um and there's going to be a master class as part of that uh that's being supported by um georgia council for the arts uh so we've got free master classes with that. And then the Garrison kids are actually, like Hansel and Gretel last year, they are learning, conceptualizing, and producing with us the Little Prince. Mm-hmm. So they are going to be the stars on stage when, when the prince you know, it says, I'm done with my time on Earth. Uh, the stars come out and sing. Well, those are the Garrison kids. They're producing the show. They're going to run out and with set pieces like they did with Hansel and Gretel. And there's an arts immersion camp that starts next week at Garrison. Our uh, education coordinator, Chad Sonka, is part of that, uh, where they're going to be doing a workshop on the opera, on the literary background to it, because it's based on a children's book. And they get to build the set. Nice. They get to conceptualize the set, not just build it. Mm-hmm. So, So that's... All that interacts in such a way, like, you know, we were talking about legacy. These kids are going to go home and talk about this to their parents. Mm -hmm. And their parents are going to say, wow, this is really great. We're going to come see you. And then their parents are going to stay engaged. So at that time in everybody's life when, you know, empty nesters are ready to start getting involved in the arts community or nonprofits or whatnot, uh, they're going to remember how it impacted their children. And we know the mean age for opera tends to be older, 50 Mm -hmm. to to 80. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think some of that has to do with the fact that people have time Mm -hmm. to pursue it. So I feel like when we get to children and really inspire them, they create a, they themselves become the legacy. Sure. And I think having them participate in these productions is a huge part of it. And that doesn't even include all the outreaches we do in the schools. We go out to all the schools and um, participate uh, in their curriculum, and then the Little Prince show on fr- our Friday eve- afternoon, pardon me, twelve thirty, is a school show. The kids are all going to be bussed in to see it, and yeah. then there's a talk back. So it's lots and lots of little layers that kind of make what we call our um, community and outreach mm-hmm. for SVF. For our deeper dive, I think I want to get into the fact that musical tastes evolve. And I think we probably could say nowadays it's more diverse and more varied than it's probably ever been. We connected all over the world, all different kinds of music. Opera is is one that has been around for a long, long time. And some people like it. Some people don't. There seems that it's very kind of polarizing. Uh, <laughs> before we started this conversation, you were talking about teaching the relevance in the art. When you say that, what do you mean? Um, well... I guess at the end of the day, performing art and being in a theater is about going on a trip, taking a journey, feeling something. You go somewhere. Why do we go to watch a movie? 
I don't know, how many times have you seen Avenger at Endgame? Have you seen it yet? I haven't. Oh my gosh! I'm not a good I've person to talk it, to I've about seen movies. It four times. Yeah. Zach over there is there the leading. There you go. Guy. I mean, Zach, how many times have you seen it? Come on, fess up. Only once. Gosh, I've I've seen it four times. I have to admit, I love all the superhero stuff. But anyway, um, it's a story. We tell stories. We are storytellers, and so we don't think that it is prohibitive to tell a story in opera. It's not just somebody standing there and singing. Mm -hmm. It is about telling a story. It's about going into a theater with the community and being part of something together. Performing arts is the only time besides a, a worship service where everybody sits in a room like that and has the same experience, mm -hmm. and yet their own. Mm -hmm. It's passive, but it's very much their own experience. And opera is that. It evolved that way. It is the first theater. It's the first musical theater that we know in our classical European traditions. Mm -hmm. And so it's so much about today, and even the operas that we've commissioned are about history, but they're today. And they're, they're not just a foreign language in some weird costume with convoluted storylines. Mm -hmm. It's about emotions. It's about feelings. It's about beauty. And it's about the human voice expressing that. Right. So how much more relevant can that be? And the fact that we're also saying to folks, hey, listen, if you don't like opera, that's cool. We think that maybe you would like it because it spans four centuries, so there's got to be one thing Something that turns you on, yeah. right? But okay, let's say you don't like opera, but there's so many other things you can engage with with the human voice. So the Broadway one has always been very popular, but now, you know, doing like rock and roll, we're not taking ourselves seriously. We don't pretend to be, you know, Pat Benatar or whatever, but we're just saying, hey, just come have some fun with us. Have a karaoke night with our opera singers kind of thing. And then we have these diverse singers that say, Maria, I love Frank Sinatra. I like, I can do, I'm doing all these programs about him. Can I come and do a recital of Frank Sinatra? Yes, Peter, you can. So, so we just feel like engage. Mm -hmm. Just come and check it out. Just sit in the theater with us. We don't like to have our shows last more than 90 minutes even because we know it's hard for people to even sit that long. I think our longest thing this summer is two hours because it's a full opera, the dialogues. But Pagliacci is... It's an hour long, Cheryl? Even less. An hour, less. yeah, Pagliacci's so not even. It's always a, a double bill in the traditional opera world, and we're not doing the yeah. other half of it. We're not doing the back half. Listen, art should not be a chore. Mm -hmm. Art should not be something you feel like you have to do for your soul. Yeah. Well, I have to, you know, it's like saying, well, I have to go to church because, you know, it feeds my soul, and I, I think it does. Well, do you like it? Mm -hmm. You know, you should go to church because you love the people there and you love the sermon and, and that sort of thing, right? Well, and there's lots of different operas. There are operas I don't like. Right. Therefore, everyone else has a right to yeah. not like certain operas. There are other operas that are fantastic. You gotta listen it, to more it, than it's one. It's huge, as you said, <laughs> yeah. four, four yeah. centuries, four centuries of music. Yeah. There's stuff you don't like, fair enough. There's stuff you could like. It's not all the same. There's as much diversity in opera as there is in any other kind of music. You know, we do outreaches with kids, and we, we say to them, well, why do you think there are so many different opera, operas in different languages? Mm -hmm. You know, because the first thing I say is, now, what, what languages are operas written in? They're all Italian, right? They'll, yeah. You know, no, well, that's the thing. You know, kids don't know. So they're like Italian. You know, and, and we say Russian, French, Italian, et cetera. So I say, well, why is that? 
and I and it just it blows their mind when I say because it was written for that public. So, for instance, American operas are being written every day. Well, they're not being written in Italian. They're being written in English right. because it's for this even public. American, even American English, right? Which is, the further we go, the, the Queen's English, And and interestingly enough, a big example of that is our dialogues of the Carmelites. Poulenc wrote the opera in French. However, in the beginning of his score, there is a note from the composer that says, this opera must be performed in the language of the audience. Okay. He dictated that yeah. because it is a dramatic piece mm-hmm. and must be done in English. Now, one of the things that we're doing, no matter what, even if it's in English, you're still going to have supertitles. We're still going to project the, what's being sung up top mm-hmm. on the wall because when we sing, sometimes it is hard to understand yeah, what's being said. Right. So you can follow along and enjoy the music and not... We don't want to tax our audience time-wise, understanding, none of those things. We want our audience to feel comfortable. We want them to chill out. We want them to enjoy it. And we want to provide them enough information ahead of time so they're not having to work to get the story. Mm-hmm. So I hope we do that. I want to wrap up with a question about generational attitudes. Obviously, you were working a lot with, with children, and mm-hmm. you were basically seeing what the future is going to be, at least a, few, uh, a, a microcosm of what the future interest in, in voice performance is going to be. What are you seeing, and how does that impact how you look at the potential for the future? <laughs> You're looking at me. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess... I think that if you don't start with the predisposed concepts of opera being horns, breastplates, and it ain't over till the fat lady sings kind of thing. Sweaty people spitting. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, on stage in big, <laughs> you know, bulky costumes. I guess if you take that away, I always, I always think about this, you know, if you don't tell a kid that opera's boring, they're never going to think that. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I also think that if you don't tell kids that it has to be with a microphone and it has to be screaming or it has to be affected or repetitious, they're not going to think that that's the catch-all. Mm-hmm. So it's not that there isn't a place for that. It's mm-hmm. just there's such a huge place for the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think if any of the master composers, the Mozart, the Verdi, Puccini of the past, I think if they lived now, these were very savvy guys in general, they would say, well, of course it has to be shorter because attitudes are very different. Back then, they wanted four- and five-hour operas because they didn't have movies, bowling, baseball, TV. There was what, no what, football any of where you stuff. could go hang now out. Now they do, and you know, okay. Times are the, the way people uh, concentrate now is very different than uh, two centuries ago. You know, they used to play cards in the middle of an opera in the boxes. Yeah. And they used to have liaisons. They would flirt with each other and, and they would pay attention. Food like they do at, and at they sports would sell events food. now. They did that in operas way back. So an opera that was yeah. four and five hours long was just more time to socialize. Right. Yeah. Whereas now we sit in a theater quiet and, you know, and need fair. to pay attention. It's, it's so correct. I think it has changed culturally. Sure. But, you know, for instance, I'll, I'll tell you a story of how I think generations can be impacted. We had a... Um, 
one of our, our wonderful chorus members that has participated in our chorus. She's been very engaged with us, and she participated in the chorus of Alice Riley. And she has two daughters. She, you know, they were little at the time, and she told them all about, you know, being part of it and how much she loved it. And so when we took on Hansel and Gretel, her daughters became part of that production. One was in the chorus, one was in the production part of it in the theater class. So, Mm -hmm. you know, one brought out a set, the other one came in as one of the gingerbread kids. I ran into them in a restaurant just a couple months ago, and it was a big reunion. And she said, you know, you have no idea. She said... To have my children now participating in your operas and to have them have that experience. It was such a great experience for me, but now it's a great memory for them. Mm-hmm. So we took pictures together, we hugged, we talked about the productions, and she, she thanked us for allowing this kind of opportunity for the community and for her. Well, that's amazing. I, and I, I walked away with tears in my eyes thinking, you know, just... Yeah, that's how you do it. That's how legacy happens is that it becomes that kind of generational. And even in our son, who had memorized all his composers by the time he was four, Mm -hmm. then gave up even wanting to hear about what we were doing until finally now... He's not only, you know, in one of our operas this summer, but he has a repertoire of music that he's learning and and wants to know more about his dad, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, and what his dad did. I I mean, I I think that's the key. That's that's how it happens. And so that's my soapbox. And as Mm -hmm. as parting words, I will say, this is a lot of, I'm doing it because I want to talk about the art. One of the things I always talk about with our audiences is we can strategize, we can work, we can fundraise, we can try to do the best we can with we have an excellence in the art form as best we can. We can produce singers that are out doing it and singing all over the world, and that's all awesome. But it's really on the audience. It's them. It's They need to talk to their daughters and sons about coming and supporting they need to share how important it is to give to nonprofits. they need to create a a lesson in that they need to bring their grandchildren and their neighbors and their nieces and nephews if they don't participate in the legacy we're lost mm-hmm. because um patronage benevolence um supporting the arts and coming to an event is taught mm-hmm it doesn't just happen. That's right. Fascinating stuff. We've talked a long time. I think we could probably talk. Uh, we could keep going, but let's uh, maybe save it for I, another time. I've had time. to stop talking at some point because I realize I can just keep going on. No, it's it's all it's all good stuff, and I'm sure that the uh, the audience is is gonna. Well, take we a lot away. we thank the audience and we thank Savannah because mm-hmm. Cheryl and I just. There's no way we could do what we do without a city as extraordinary as this one. Okay. Well, thank well, you. Again, without an audience, you have no performance. That's right. Of course. That's right. Well, thank you again for coming in, and we'll look forward to the festival. Don't miss Great. a note. <laughs> Thanks to Maria Zubis for sharing her insights on Difference Makers and to our presenting sponsor, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. Tap into the Difference Makers archives anytime on your favorite podcast app to hear interviews with more of Savannah's community leaders, such as Cedas Triptolison, James Beard Award-winning chef Mashama Bailey, 
and Savannah Bananas owners Jesse and Emily Cole. Difference Makers is a production of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. We'll be back August the 16th. Our scheduled guest is Georgia Ports Authority Executive Director Griff Lynch. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 